Uh, let's pray for Andrew. Father, how we thank you for the gift of Bible teaching that you've given to Andrew, for the work he's put in. And we pray now that by your spirit you would breathe fresh life into Andrew as he teaches it again, uh, into us. May we hear you speaking to us through the scriptures and as Andrew teaches. So come and speak, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, everybody. Um, you, you've come back. <laughs> you know that in a series of talks, uh, week two is always the speaker's nightmare because he's never, he or she is never quite sure uh, how many are going to return. But it looks as if most of you have, and some of you are with us for the first time, and that's lovely. Thank you. One of you during the week very kindly sent me a book, and I know that was based on a brief conversation over coffee time. I'm not quite sure who you are, and I want to say thank you, so could you please just identify yourself to me during the break, and I'll say thank you for your book. Um, if last week we climbed in the foothills of the book of Revelation, then this week onwards we move into the mountain slopes. And some of the material that we'll be looking at, especially in the second half tonight, is not easy, but we need to grapple with it. It's in the scriptures for a reason, a purpose. We need to discover what that is and hopefully to mature as we look at these tougher bits of God's word. But first, a brief recap, or if you're a Netflix fan, you might hear it as previously in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, we were presented with an awe-inspiring vision of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ, the one who called himself the first and the last, the living one. And this vision, you recall, was given to John, a persecuted senior Christian leader who was living in exile on the Greek island of Patmos in the late 80s or early 90s AD. And as part of this vision, in chapters 2 and 3, we found the risen Christ patrolling, as it were, around his churches on earth. And as a result of what he discovered on his rounds, Christ then writing seven letters via John to seven churches, churches geographically set in what we now know as modern Turkey. But as I pointed out last week and will say again today, the number seven in Revelation is always highly symbolic. And so those seven churches really stood for every church in every place and generation, our church, mine and yours, and the whole church universal. Such is the relevance of this book. Now, there is a sense in which chapters one to three act as a kind of overture to the grand opera which follows. And in chapter four, that grand opera begins, continuing majestically right through 19 chapters to the great finale of chapter 22. So at the beginning of chapter four, we turn somewhat abruptly from the church on earth, those seven symbolic congregations, we turn from that to the church in heaven. Heaven in inverted commas, perhaps, as always in the Bible, not so much a physical or geographical location, certainly not a place up there somewhere beyond the blue, 
Rather, by heaven, the Bible means a sphere or order of existence parallel to our physical existence where God rules. If you like, it's what St. Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, describes as the heavenly places. And it's where it's the spiritual sphere of reality where the masks are off and both good and evil are seen for what they really are heaven or the heavenlies. And the Christ whom we saw patrolling amongst the seven churches, that Christ is now revealed as also being in the heavenlies at the very center of the unchangeable throne of God. So let's follow John in, shall we, as we come to our first reading together. Those of you who were here last week know that we are reading aloud these passages of Scripture. There is some blessing in that, I think. And we're going to read on page six in your workbook, page six, we're going to read chapter four, verses one to seven. One to seven. Stops slightly abruptly. You'll realize that why later, one to seven. And don't forget the response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, ready everybody? After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Cornelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there in heaven, or in the heavenlies, a door stood open. And the first voice which I'd heard said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. So, as I've hinted just now, John is looking into the sphere of spiritual reality, the real operations room of the entire universe. We have a phrase in English, don't we? A bird's eye view. Well, John is being given a heaven's eye view, or the heavenly's perspective. And what does he see? Basically, three things. One, a throne from which God rules over the universe. That's chapter four. 
Secondly, a scroll. That is the book of history. A scroll initially held tightly in the right hand of God, a scroll that is at first closed and securely sealed. First half of chapter 5. And then thirdly, we see a lamb, but a lamb that looks as if it had been sacrificed. A lamb who, because of that sacrifice, is found worthy to open that scroll. That's the second half of chapter 5. It's Jesus Christ, of course. Here is Christ in the heavenlies. A throne, a scroll, a lamb, or the lamb. Let's look at the three in more detail. First of all, the throne. And I suggest to you that it's highly significant that the first thing John saw as he peeped through this open door was a throne. That is a symbol of the sovereignty, majesty, and kingly rule of God. We've just said the Lord's Prayer just now, where Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth, and then he added these crucial words, as it is in heaven. Yes, God's will being done in the heavenlies or from the heavenlies, from his throne. Of course, John's harassed readers would be all too familiar with thrones. The thrones of Roman governors and magistrates, from which harsh punishments and even death sentences were being mercilessly handed down. But John wants them to see the only throne that really matters. The only lasting and abiding throne, the throne of God. And so, incredibly, this divine throne is mentioned no less than 17 times throughout the book of Revelation, almost once per chapter. You see, against the might of Rome, think of it, those seven churches would seem so small and struggling and impotent but through God on his throne, invisible to the human eye, but real in the heavenlies, these Christians were overcoming and could and would overcome and conquer. I wonder how the Christian church in the world today looks like, what it looks like in many parts of the world in comparison with the giants of world governments. Perhaps the church looks marginalized, irrelevant, powerless, declining, especially here in the West. Well, you and I need to see with John into the heavenlies where power really rests. So this all-important throne, is there an occupant? Yes, of course, verse 2. But crucially, the occupant of the throne is not described. Why not? because God the occupier is indescribable. All John can relate is that he saw brilliant colours, like flashing jewels, jasper, carnelian. And then John says, and oh, it's tantalisingly brief, isn't it? Verse 2, sitting on the throne was one. In some versions, someone. That's all. But notice, not some thing. No, some one. Why is that important? It's important because from first page to last, the Bible insists against popular perceptions that God has personality, as you and I do. 
That's why we're able to relate to him. We and God, at his design, are programmed with the same software. It's not quite how the book of Genesis puts it, but it's what it means when it says made in God's image, programmed with the same software. So God is not force or fate or even providence, a name which I think is simply too impersonal. No, God is someone. And someone surrounded by a rainbow, we read in verse 3. Why a rainbow? Well, surely this is the rainbow of God's covenant with Noah after the flood. And as such, it speaks of God's mercy, covenanted or promised to us through Christ. We shall hear in this book quite a lot about God's judgment. But right at the beginning as well, alongside, is a symbol of his incredible mercy. Now, God's throne that John has seen is utterly central, as indicated by what is around it. And you might like to look at the diagram on page seven of your workbook. Please, friends, this is only an attempt to draw what we have read. Nothing more than an attempt. Basically, the throne in the center, represented by the square box there, is surrounded by three circles or groups. See that? Closest in, it would seem, but it's difficult to be precise, but apparently the closest in, what John describes as four living creatures. And I've drawn, as it were, two to the north of the throne above and two to the south below. Four living creatures. Why four? Well, one for each of the four points of the compass, maybe. So embracing the whole of world creation or nature. We talk about the four corners of the earth, don't we, and the four winds of heaven. So not surprising to find four here. And between them, these four living creatures embrace the very best in God's creation. God's created masterpieces, if you like. So the first living creature is like a lion, what is noblest, maybe, in the animal kingdom. The second living creature is like an ox. So standing for what is the strongest in creation, and not only the strongest, but also the most useful to humans. Lions aren't much used to humans, but oxes are. A strength that has been domesticated and harnessed. The third living creature is like a man, a person, a woman, so representing what is wisest in the created order. And the fourth is like an eagle, perhaps the most powerful and majestic of all flying creatures. And do you notice, we observe that these four between them unite humans and animals, man with ox, eagle, and lion. And that sort of unity, as opposed to enmity, is a feature of all the Bible's visions of the future of creation. Creation once fallen, but then renewed in God's great salvation plan. That's how the prophets of the Old Testament see it. So, do you recognize these words from Isaiah chapter 11? The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. 
Nature no longer red in tooth and claw as it is in 2019. But in heaven, the place of ultimate reality, creation is in perfect harmony as a reality, as represented by these extraordinary four living creatures surrounding the very throne of the creature, creator himself. Anything else about these living creatures? Yes, verse 6, we were told that they were full of eyes in front and behind. I don't think we should take that too literally. The Lord is not surrounded by Daleks. No, this is a symbolic way of describing a wonderful truth, and that is the ceaseless watchfulness or vigilance of God's operations room. The heavenly HQ sees all and misses nothing. And of course, the corollary is that you and I cannot sin secretly. We can hide it from the world, but not from God. The four living creatures. And then, just beyond them, or, or is it really beyond, but there anyway, the second circle or group, 24 elders on 24 thrones. Incidentally, Revelation's text here isn't so exact that it specifies an inner and outer circle. Remember, this is the stuff of visions or dreams, and visions are not logical and consistent, are they? but I've depicted inner and outer circles simply to clarify. But back to these 24, what's all this about? Well, in the book of Revelation, the number 12 always stands for the church. We shall meet it again in chapter seven. Number 12 always stands for the church. So 24 then, two times 12, represents, I suggest, the church of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the church of the New Testament, the 12 apostles. You know, we do ourselves a disservice as Christian people by the way we divide our Bible into two separate testaments or parts. Yes, it's convenient in terms of study, but scripture as a whole sees a tremendous continuity between the old and the new. It's one reason why I believe it's the inspired word of God, because it has this fantastic unity. Progression from old to new, certainly, but a fundamental unity and oneness. And that unity, expressed here in heaven by the 24 sitting together, that unity demonstrates God's authority over history. Because what's he done? He has brought two churches or communities into being. The second emerging from the first. Some would say the old Israel to the new Israel. And John tells us, verse 4, that the elders were dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head. White and gold respectively, purity, and majesty. And again, a very distant prospect for us here in 2019 as we view the worldwide Christian church. We find it anything but pure and majestic. The child abuse scandals, for instance. But in heaven, you see, the sphere of ultimate reality and the sphere beyond earthly time or space, there the church is already as God always intended, 100% redeemed, purified, and sanctified. 
And that vision should help us not only to look forward to being part of it one day, but also it should stir each one of us up as church members to do our utmost to make church here and now on earth as akin as possible to its eternal heavenly counterpart. Purity. And then further out still, but still close to the throne and very much part of the action, do you see there a third circle, myriads of angels singing. We'll come to that in chapter 5. Also there, as described further on in chapter 7, and represented at the very bottom of the diagram, a vast multitude of faithful Christians. Those who've been persecuted, many martyred, but they overcame and are overcoming and are now vindicated. Very briefly, what other details are we given of the throne's immediate surroundings? Well, verse 6 records in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Do you notice John's modesty of language? He doesn't say what he saw was a sea of glass, only that it looked something like that. And once again, we are confronted with the indescribable, the inadequacy of human words to express heavenly realities. But sea of glass? Why a sea? Well, commentators have different views on this, but I suggest to you that it speaks of some kind of infinite expanse. There is a sense of infiniteness, isn't there, about the sea as you look out on it. And so this speaks of God's transcendence or utter otherness or other worldliness. Yes, he came to us in Christ, praise God, but there is something utterly transcendent and otherness about God too. And this glass was like crystal, writes John. You may not know, but let me tell you, ordinary glass in the first century AD was quite unlike modern glass in our century. First century AD glass was usually quite dark, even opaque. So this glass was like a sea and like crystal. It would be extraordinarily rare and expensive. So we have the throne surrounded by the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the myriads of angels, and millions of Christian people. But what are they all doing? Let's find out. Let's read again. Back to page 6. And we're going to read verses 8 to 11. Verses 8 to 11. Ready, everybody? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, led by the four living creatures, the elders and all the rest are worshipping God, that indescribable someone on his throne. They are praising him. And they are praising him, first of all, for who he is and what he has done. Try and hold those two things in your memory. Who he is and what he has done. Who God is, verse 8, holy and eternal. He was and is and is to come. And secondly, what he has done. We'll come on to that in a minute. Our God, holy and eternal awesome in majesty. I wonder if those things come across in the way you and I worship in our churches on a Sunday or midweek. Or just to put that question another way, does our worship here on earth in any way point to and mirror the awesome worship of heaven? It should do. Or is it sometimes, if we're honest, limp, banal and merely entertainment. We have a real problem here, I think, in, in this country in 2019. We want to draw in people in this informal age in which we live. We want to be relevant to them. And so we try and make what we do in our churches on Sunday relevant and contemporary. But I do worry that sometimes all we seem to be doing is giving people fun when actually our worship needs to make them say, wow, who is this God that they're worshipping? I want to know more about him. In other words, the worship should raise questions that the preaching then answers as to who God is. Well, discuss that with your church leaders about the worship in your church. And don't be afraid of putting people off by worship that is magisterial and awesome because our world cries out for something otherworldly like that. I remember an Anglo-Catholic priest once justifying the use of incense in his church. And I said to him, well, why do you use incense? And he said, because you can't buy it in Marks and Spencers. <laughs> and I think he was onto something. So in heaven, they are praising God for who he is and they are also praising him for what he has done. Verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Our Lord and God? Hey, that was the exact title the Roman Emperor Domitian took for himself. But to whom does it alone really belong? John's vision is telling us. You created all things. Yes, even the strangest of animals, you know, the rhinoceros, why did God create that? So I suggest that you think of this worship song when next you're watching David Attenborough's Planet Earth or Blue Planet Revisited or Equivalent Nature Programme. What have we got here? We have the living creatures and the 24 elders. We have nature and the church, respectively, God's old creation and God's new creation, united in praise and worship 24-7, day and night. That's what's going on in the heavenlies. And the two essentials of worship, ask yourself about this every song or hymn you choose. 
does it reflect something of who God or Jesus is and what God or Jesus have done? The, the throne. Secondly, the scroll. We're into chapter 5. We're going to read again, page 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 5. Ready? Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so John looks more closely now at the throne and its occupant. And he notices in the occupant that someone's hand a scroll. A scroll covered in writing, but the writing is hidden because the scroll is closed up with seven seals. The number seven again. We are into the highly symbolic once more. Seven for completeness or seven for the real essence of history, the fundamental material, so to speak. Now, it was Roman custom that a person's will was to be witnessed by seven people. You glad we don't have that these days? A person's will was to be witnessed by seven people, each of whom added their own seal or signature. So what we're looking at here, if you like, is God's will or testament, his plans for history. And in particular, God's plan still sealed as secret God's plan to expose, undo, and overthrow the forces of evil. That's what this is about. Let me say it again. God's plan still sealed as secret to expose, undo, and overthrow the forces of evil. The forces of evil that seem to have gained such power in their world-destroying projects. And we shall just find out what sort of power that is when we come to chapter 6 later tonight. Now, in verse 2, John describes how he heard an angel ask the $64,000 question, the question all of us would like to ask, namely, who is worthy to break the seals and so disclose the scroll's contents and exactly how evil is to be overthrown? Who can do this? In other words, who on earth or in heaven is worthy or able to overthrow the powers of evil? So the crucial question is asked, and no one steps forward. Why not? Because there is no one apart from Christ qualified to destroy evil. Why not? Because there is no one, no human, who has not in some way contributed to the spread of evil in the world. 
That's the Bible's verdict on all of us, isn't it? In some way, all of us, either by the sins of commission or omission, have spoilt God's beautiful world. Okay, maybe in micro, not macro, but that's not the point. So there is no one worthy or qualified to step forward to overcome and vanquish the powers of evil. And this really upsets John, naturally, who ends up in floods of tears. But he is comforted by one of the 24 elders who gives us a clue, verse 5. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Hmm, interesting. I mean, from our Bibles, we know that this is Jesus. The words Judah and David give it away because Jesus was from the line of David in the tribe of Judah. But the names Jesus or Christ are not heard at this point. Only the title Lion, suggesting, well, yes, majestic power. You know, the king of the beasts, Lion King. So, we can imagine John looking around for such a mighty creature. Or better, a giant of a person. What else or who else could possibly mastermind the defeat of evil? But as he gazes around, what does he actually see? The answer is amazing. It came in verse 6, which we'll come to later. I saw a lamb. What? I saw a lamb. The very antithesis of the lion. What is going on here? Well, you'll have to wait until part two to find out. We've... Uh, last week, we did a little bit of filling in of things, just by way of reminder. As I said to you last week, please don't feel you've got to do this. We're not at school, but it may help you to do so. Some of you may have been doing it as I was talking. Fine. But in case you weren't, let's look at page eight, and just by way of revision, let's uh, fill in a few things here. On page eight... If chapters 1 to 3 revealed Christ on earth patrolling around his churches, chapter 4 onwards reveals Christ in heaven or the heavenlies. John sees, first of all, a throne. How does he describe who is sitting on it? Answer, some one. Underline the word one. Some one, not something. Why is this such a vague description? Because God is indescribable. That's why the Bible sets its face against all idolatry. Because the idea that human beings can ever create something of the likeness of God and worthy of him is nonsense. What feature representing God's covenant encircling the throne answer a rainbow? Surrounding the throne, A, representing nature, the four living creatures which resembled A, lion, B, ox, C, man, or if you prefer, human, and finally, eagle, D, lion, ox, human, eagle. Why four? Well, perhaps it's the four points of the compass, the whole world. 
In what ways do these four represent the best of creation? Well, I've not left a blank there. That's up for you to do yourself and see if you can remember what I said. Moving down, surrounding the throne, John sees B, representing the church, the 24 elders on 24 thrones. 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 for the 12 apostles. In other words, the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. Am I going too fast? You're keeping up? Surrounding the throne, C, representing the heavenly host, myriads of angels. By the way, the Greek word used for angel can also mean messenger. They don't have to have white wings. They are messengers. And the Bible does seem to suggest that every single Christian person has their own angel or messenger. There is a hint of that. Interesting idea, isn't it? Anyway, they're there on our behalf. What did John see that showed God's infinite transcendence or otherness? A sea of glass. Or what looked like a sea of glass. The worship of those surrounding the throne, how do they describe God's character and nature? Well, as holy and eternal. Holy and eternal. No beginning, no middle, no end. The worship of those surrounding the throne, how do they describe what God has done? Answer, you created all things. Reflection. Think of one part of the created order or nature that inspires you and thank God for its creation. Why don't we do that now in just a moment of quiet? Heavenly Father, there might be 250 different answers to that question in this room tonight because you have made such an amazing world. And whatever it is we've just thought of, thank you for it. Question. Does the worship in my church on Sunday or midweek reflect the worship in heaven revealed here? brackets and if it doesn't what can we do about it moving on John sees secondly a scroll verse 1 which represents God's will or plan of history including the final climax only Jesus Christ is worthy to break the seals and reveal the scrolls contents by what title is Jesus named it's the lion of the tribe of Judah the lion of the tribe of Judah or the root of David. And friends, if you want a cross-reference just to help explain that, 
It's Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. I won't say any more, but you could look it up. Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. That will unlock that one for you. Talk about the unity of the Bible, eh? Why is he worthy to open the scroll? He has conquered. He has conquered. John looks around for a lion. What does he see instead? A lamb looking as though it had been slain. A lamb looking as though it had been slain. Let's just have another moment of quiet. You might like to look at the diagram again on verse seven, page seven, and maybe wonder at its uh, extraordinary visionary nature. Dear Lord, we've thought just now of something in this world which excites us and causes us to praise you. But we thank you for this little glimpse we have into the heavenlies and how awesome it is. And one day we'll see it. Just keep us going as your disciples until that day. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Andrew, thank you. I've been filling in mine as I've gone along, and I left it in my vestry during the week, so I, remember, so I wouldn't forget it. And some kind person I found has got hold of my attempts to fill in. And on page three says, 27 out of 31, must try harder. And, <laughs> And then my notes along the text are tick and good. And then the seven words from the seven churches, seven out of seven, very good. So whoever you are, thank you for your encouragement. <laughs> and, I, and I hope that you get similar encouragement. Uh, we're going to have our coffee break now. We will come back in 20 minutes. I'll call you back a few minutes before that. Coffee is straight through as far as you can go in a straight line. Uh, on the left of uh, the kitchen will be tea by the hatch, and on the right there's cold drinks and hot water for herbal brews and things like that. Uh, so back in 20 minutes, head back in quarter of an hour or so, so we're ready to get going again. I'd like to tell you about an advertisement which you might have seen. I think it was for beer. Um, a woman comes home into the room where her husband, with a beer in his hand, is watching the television. Uh, the woman is dishevelled, blackened, and there is smoke billowing all around her hair. She says rather shakily, I've just seen the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And without turning around or taking his eyes off the television, the husband replies, never mind, dear, it's not the end of the world. <laughs>
actually, he was right. But more of that later. Um, let's look at chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. We're on page 9 in our workbooks. Page 9. And we're going to read together these wonderful words, chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth, wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And there have been many great hymns and songs based on those words. So, at the very end of our first session this evening, we found John looking for and expecting someone lion-like to come forward and open the seven seals of the scroll held in God's hand. But as he looks around heaven, what does he see? Answer, verse 6, a lamb. And this lamb is as central to the book of Revelation as the throne of chapter 4. The lamb is mentioned 28 times, seven times four. Four is the number for the world, seven is the number for completeness. So maybe 28 references contains a subliminal message. The lamb's victory is complete and universal, seven times four. But the lamb the most vulnerable of all four-legged animals and the mildest. Contrast the big muscular brute beasts chosen by the nations of the world as their particular symbol or mascot. The Russian bear, the British lion, the Roman eagle. 
whereas the kingdom of God chooses the lamb. Why? Well, it links with the great Christian truth so clearly demonstrated by Jesus himself during his earthly ministry, the truth that real power does not lie in aggression or military might. It might look as if it does, but not really. No real power lies in self-sacrificial serving love. This is something that Mahatma Gandhi partially grasped, although not a Christian himself. And we have a popular adage that gets a little bit near it when we say the pen is mightier than the sword. So I suggest that you and I do not need to be cowed or frightened by television newsreel shots of North Korea's and China's huge military parades. You know, they're vast processions of missiles and rocket launchers. They look formidable, don't they? Just as the Roman legions on parade will have looked to John's readers. But scripture says that all such power is merely an ephemeral shadow when compared with the real power. A lamb. Well, that's striking enough. But more than that, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Note again the slight diffidence of language here. And this is a reference, of course, to the mutilation of Jesus by crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. There is the scent of blood here, sacrifice, as throughout scripture. And that unique sacrifice resting at the very heart of the universe. Think of that. Because as John tells us, the mutilated lamb was standing in the center of the throne. In other words, the stricken lamb is sharing the throne with God himself. It reminds us of the words of one of the classic Christian creeds. Jesus Christ, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right hand, well, in the center of the throne, you know, don't be too exact. And in this totally central position, Jesus the Lamb is surrounded by the four living creatures representing nature and the 24 elders representing the church. Well, as John continues to observe, the lamb takes action. He comes to the occupant of the throne and takes the scroll from that someone's right hand. And that is the signal for the second great outburst of heavenly praise in the book of Revelation. And this time it's singing. Chapter 4 suggests it was words, but this is singing. The four living creatures and the 24 elders this time exalt not only God the creator as in chapter 4, but the Lamb, the Redeemer, the Saviour. Verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed saints for God, etc. So why is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, alone able to open the scroll? That is to reveal, interpret and in a sense manage history. Answer, because on the cross, to which he went deliberately and voluntarily without complaint, on that cross, Jesus destroyed the opposition. He vanquished hate. He conquered evil and the power of the devil. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. That's worth thinking about. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He spiked their guns. 
And part of that disarming was achieved, of course, by Jesus' extraordinarily healing words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's just part of it. And that disarming process was completed by God raising Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday, victorious over death itself. So, in praise of the Lamb, the, choir around, the chorus around the throne rings out, and then all heaven is let loose, as the choir is massively supplemented by many angels, verse 11, and then in verse 13, by every creature, interesting, every creature anywhere and everywhere, and even those under the earth, so the worms are joining in. This is all-inclusive worship. But more seriously, friends, I wonder if Jesus Christ, alone worthy to open the scroll of history, I wonder if he is as central to our thinking and to our worship here on earth as he is in heaven, the place of reality. Or, if we're honest, even though we're Christians, followers of Christ, are we in these days of overriding political correctness and religious tolerance, so-called, are we a little shy of promoting our Lord Jesus to the very highest place imaginable? I know I've shrunk back from that. I found it easier to talk about God than about Jesus, and that's a coward in me. I need to talk about Jesus, and so do we. May I just make one comment on the terrible events that happened in New Zealand last Friday between our first session and this second session. I don't know about you, but I've been greatly moved by seeing the way Christians have uh, handed out flowers at mosques and have tried to uh, express a certain oneness with, 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 with Muslims. And I'm sure that's good and right. But I just have one word of caution in this. And that is when people use the expression, we are all people of faith. Have you heard that expression? We're all people of faith. Yes, we are, but we do have to remember that our faith is very, very different from Islam. And we must not think that they're actually all the same because they aren't. This is not to say anything about the moral standard of Muslims, many of whom are much better in their faith than we Christians are. But the two faiths are very different. And no Muslim could possibly agree to what is said about Jesus Christ here in Revelation. Because the Quran denies two things about Jesus. It denies that he's the son of God, and it denies that he was crucified. Did you know that? The Quran says that Jesus escaped the cross at the last minute and someone was substituted in his place. No Christian can ever say that. So whilst we share some ethical and moral values with Islam and some beliefs, oneness of God and other things, actually the two faiths are poles apart. And therefore just be a bit careful of the expression we're all people of faith. I think we've got to be a little bit maturer than that. Now, I wonder what John's readers were making of all this. I mean, do you think the whole thing might have seemed too much for them to grasp? Too grandiose, too overwhelming? How do they really count at all in this mind-blowing display? Do they? Yes. Because there's a little detail we've so far overlooked in this widescreen view of heaven. Verse 8. The four living creatures and the 24 elders each holding golden bowls full of incense, 
which, wait for it, are the prayers of the saints. So in the heavenlies there are bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Yes, but who are the saints? Well, saint is the title the New Testament often uses to describe every follower of Jesus Christ. Every Christian. And not just those who are made official saints by the church hierarchies. You see, in the New Testament, the title saint is nothing to do with spiritual achievement or degree of purity. It's more about our status, however much we've grown into that status. If I can just give a little bit of an example, think of King George VI, Bertie, and his brother David, who was the Prince of Wales. So he had the title prince. That was more about status than it was about his moral or ethical lifestyle, wasn't it? And in the same way, the New Testament title, Saint, is more about our status than actually what we've done with it. So, if you count yourself a Christian tonight, add the title Saint to your name. Last week it was Reverend, this week it's Saint. Your business card is looking better. So this incense is the prayers of the saints. Every Christian, the prayers of John's readers, my prayers, and your prayers. And contrary to what you and I are often tempted to think, those prayers are not wasted in the heavenlies, are they? Down here on earth, our prayers, well mine anyway, seem often futile, weak, and useless. But here we see those prayers from the perspective of the Lord's operations room, his headquarters. And these prayers are not considered as just so much hot air. No, rather they have transmuted into a pile of fragrant incense, stored in a golden bowl, held by an elder close to the throne of God himself. And as such, they are an integral part of the worship of heaven, and are used to kindle a fire on earth. That's what incense does. So I wonder if you sometimes feel a bit useless as a servant of Jesus Christ. And you say to yourself, well, all I can do is to pray. Well, maybe some of John's readers would have said that to themselves as they languished in a Roman dungeon. All I can do is to pray. Well, says John, great, think incense. And so we come to chapter 6, where the lamb's, lamb begins to open the scroll seals one by one. And it has to be said, dear friends, that at this point the book of Revelation becomes much more difficult. There are some very unpleasant things described, or as the BBC would say, quotes, some viewers may find some images distressing. Let's read for ourselves on page 10. And we're going to read verses 1 to 11. So page 10 in our workbook and verses 1 to 11. Ready? Then, I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come. 
and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come. I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come. I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. Whatever is all this about? And why are these dreadful things paraded here in Holy Scripture? Well, let me first say what I suggest we have not got here, and the little story joke with which I began gives the clue. I suggest that this is not a description of the end of the world, the climax of history. The first four seals depict four horsemen, and these are sometimes called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And therefore, they are immediately associated in popular thinking with the apocalyptic end of history. But I suggest that a better explanation is that what we have here is simply a description of the world as it is. Not what it will be, but as it is. A description of the world as it always has been and as it will continue to be until the ultimate victory of Christ over evil. So these terrible events, I suggest, are not so much like signs on a motorway saying end of motorway one mile, you know, when are the end chaps, not that. Rather, they are the motorway's hazard lights which warn us of dangers on the route. Dangers, incidentally, from which the Christian church will not be immune. Dangers which will affect Christians in every age. One commentator has put it this way, quotes, what we have here are the commonplaces of history. The commonplaces of history. 
Let's look at the first five seals in that light. Now, on page 11, don't look at it, please, but on page 11, you will find that I have summarized what I'm going to say, which will, I think, help memory and maybe kind of just enable your understanding. I think it's probably best if you listen to me, if you don't mind, first before turning to the crib sheet, okay? So let's have a look at the first five seals, and I'm going to deal with the seals in a different order from how they come in the text for reasons that will become clear. So the second seal, the second horseman, verse 4, then out, of, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. A red horse, red for bloodshed. But do notice something, that although he was given a sword the rider himself kills nobody. All he does, I say all, is to remove human restraint, to take peace from the earth. So who does all the killing? Answer, warring men. And they do it with consummate thoroughness. What we have here is a tragic snapshot of uninterrupted historical warfare, which is true, isn't it? Did you know that World War II, a war effectively kick-started by one man, Hitler, did you know that that war caused the deaths of nearly 40 million people? The third seal, a black horse this time, black standing for famine. And a strange cry, verse 6, I bet you wonder what this was about as we read it, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. Different translations of the Bible will give different weights and measures here. But the message is clear, food at times will become prohibitively expensive. A day's pay will hardly keep a person alive because of rampant inflation. Ring any bells? Zimbabwe, Venezuela, for instance. Oh, but don't miss the sting in the tail at the end. Says the voice cynically, do not damage the olive oil and the wine. This is a brilliant piece of writing. Rephrase it, do look after the champagne and the caviar. In other words, the luxury goods for the rich only, commodities which even in the hardest times have an inexplicable way of turning up on the tables of the privileged few through extortion, hoarding, and the black market. Is that not so? We need look no further than George Warleggan of Poldark fame. Friends, what we've got here is another tragic snapshot. It is a tragic snapshot of the built-in flaws of every humanly devised and humanly managed economic system. From capitalism to communism, they are all flawed. Fourth seal, a pale horse this time, perhaps sickly green. Verse 8, its rider's name was Death and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. 
Some overlap here with seals two and three, but this time a quarter of the earth affected. That's an appalling disaster, but nothing is said to indicate that this is one single catastrophic event. No, rather, this is a submission to the unalterable fact, isn't it, that everybody has to die somehow, and saying that 25% of all deaths will be caused by war, famine, and disease. And that's probably right, if you could do it statistically. Disease. The 14th century Black Death comes to mind. The Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. And death by wild animals... Well, not now in the UK, but even today, more than 10,000 people a year die from snake bites in India. That is 27 every day. You see what I mean when I say that this is not about the end of the world, this is about what the world is like now. Now back to the first seal, verse 2, okay? I looked and there was a white horse its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So here is the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And some commentators have interpreted this as being all about the destructive force of military conflict. So something similar to Seals 2 and 4. But other commentators, and I tend to agree with them, see this first horseman very differently. He's riding a white horse. And in Revelation, white is always the color of righteousness and purity. Nothing to do with skin color or race, of course. But white is the color of righteousness and purity. And furthermore, he is a crown-wearing conqueror, isn't he? And again in Revelation, crowns and conquests belong mainly, but not exclusively, to God's side. So who could this be riding out in front? Perhaps it's Jesus Christ. So before the other three horsemen are permitted to spread the horrors of war, famine, and disease, Christ rides out first, or in prominence, let's put it that way, bent on conquest, oh yes, but not military conquest, but rather the capturing of the hearts of men and women through the gospel. Now, if that's right, do you see the significance of this? Yes, terrible calamities are going to sweep over the godless world. And the Christian church will not be immune from this. Seal 5. But there is hope. Ultimate salvation for all who will bow their knee to Christ and to the Lamb. And it's that vast constituency or part of it that we meet in seal number 5. And then again in chapter 7. So the fifth seal, verses 9 to 11, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slaughtered for the word of God. So this isn't every follower of Jesus Christ. We shall meet them in chapter 7. No, these here are the Christian martyrs to date. Every single one of John's contemporaries who had already died for their faith. And where are they? Answer, under the altar. Now, John hasn't mentioned this altar before, but it was clearly close to the throne, part of the furniture of the heavenlies, and part of the image of the Lamb looking as if it had been slain, the altar. 
the place of sacrifice. Here is the real location of Calvary. Not so much on earth in Jerusalem, but in the heavenlies, and therefore effectual for all time. We'll come back to that in chapter 11. And the martyrs are under this altar. That speaks of protection, doesn't it? Where did people go first when the bombs started falling in the Blitz? To the Anderson shelter, yes, but perhaps their first instinct was to dive under the kitchen table. A place of safety. And John's vision reveals that every martyr of Christ to date was utterly safe. Redeemed by his sacrifice with which they had so closely identified themselves. I mean, just think what that must have meant to John's readers in the situation they were. What a message of encouragement, sandwiched as it is between the other contrasting scenarios of disaster, from which, as I say, Christ's people would not necessarily be exempt. Protected under the altar. In October 2017, IS, the so-called Islamic State, abducted 20 Egyptian Coptic Christians who were in Libya as migrant workers. Refusing to deny Christ as Lord, they all had their throats cut and the whole grisly massacre was videoed. Incredibly, and this story is well documented by reliable journalists, incredibly that video has now been given to the relatives of the 20 back in Egypt. And they have watched it several times as families with apparent calm and ease. One or two found it too much. Most did not, and they watched it again. And this is what they said over and over again as journalists testify. Quotes, we now have holy martyrs in heaven, our husbands, and we rejoice. Dear friends, such is the power and relevance of scriptures like Revelation 6, 9 to 11, the fifth seal. Not relevant to us probably in the UK, but my God, it's relevant in some parts of the Middle East and Nigeria. Now these martyrs cry out for justice, quite rightly. But in the vision, they're told to wait, aren't they? Until, verse 11, the number will be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters who were soon to be killed, as they had been. So, reveals John, there are going to be a lot more martyrs before Christ's ultimate victory. And there have indeed been a lot more down through the Christian centuries, and particularly in more recent times. In 1989, a carefully researched paper entitled Martyrs in the 20th Century was presented to a Christian conference on world mission in Manila. Some of you will have heard of this and known of it. Some of you may have even been there. The paper put forward the estimation that since 1900, 26 million Christians had been persecuted to death particularly in Russia following the Communist Revolution of 1917, China, particularly in the Red Guard Cultural Revolution of 1966, Cambodia with the reign of Pol Pot in the late 70s, and parts of Africa. And tragically, the flow of Christian blood has not stopped in this century, has it? 
Nigeria recently, 300 Christians massacred by Fulani tribesmen coming from the north. Most of our papers missed that. The Christian press didn't. Pakistan, Iraq, Egypt, the list of countries is endless. Now, as we said, the martyrs of the fifth seal cry to God for justice and they will get it, as revealed in the Lamb's opening of the sixth seal, verses 15 to 17. And we're going to read that together now. So page 10 and verses 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, if the first five seals portray different aspects of history between the first coming of Christ and leading up to his second coming, maybe this sixth seal does describe the end or the climax. There isn't time this evening to deal with this in a lot of detail. Suffice it to say, did you notice John sees a whole raft of human society trying to dodge God's righteous judgment. How many categories of people? Seven. Well, well, well. The kings of the earth, magnates, generals, the rich, the powerful, slave and free. Seven. Suggesting, actually, right across the human spectrum. Trying unsuccessfully to dodge the righteous judgment of God for their crimes what is called the wrath of the Lamb. Is there a sense of subconscious guilt? Is there a sense of a subconscious guilty conscience here? As when people exclaim, oh my God! But there's no repentance. But what's all this about Jesus the Lamb displaying wrath? Now, we may not like the idea, but yes, the pure righteousness of God that must execute justice, and in particular, justice against those who have deliberately and ruthlessly, cruelly persecuted Christian men and women, and even children, to death. But friends, it is vital, if we're to be mature Christians, that we understand what this phrase, the wrath of God, means, and what it doesn't mean. And you might like to follow exactly what I've written in the penultimate paragraph of page 11. Would you like to look at this? I've written this out. I'm going to speak exactly as it's written here because it's a difficult concept, but so important, and I hope perhaps the full text in front of you may help. So I'm reading from the paragraph that says, the wrath of God or the wrath of the Lamb. 
This is quite unlike typical human wrath or anger, which is often blind rage, impetuous, volatile, self-centered, irrational, arbitrary, and brought on by hurt pride. Isn't that true? Isn't that what our anger is like, usually? By contrast, God's wrath is his personal, unrelenting, continuous, consistent hostility against anyone or anything that threatens to spoil the objects of his love, namely all that he has created. So you see, actually, God's wrath is part of his burning love. They are two sides of the same coin. Now, we can briefly understand this, I think, in our role, perhaps, as parents, or godparents, or grandparents. Think of the righteous anger that burns in the heart of any parent witnessing his beloved children being cruelly and unjustly hurt, abused, or violated. If that's how we feel when we see objects of our love being hurt, how much more God, the heavenly parent, will burn with righteous anger when he sees the object of his created love being abused. That's what the wrath of God is all about. Totally different from human anger. I've written a bit more, and it's in italics at the bottom there from C.S. Lewis, so again, let me read this. You might find it helpful. Love and anger are not opposite extremes of a spectrum, but right next to each other, and sometimes only a breath apart. And so with the wrath of God. Wrath expresses what happens when we resist that stream of love. A wall of water building up against anything which gets in its path and resists it. That is wrath all right. Typical Lewis, isn't it? And C.S. Lewis, as some of you will know, went on to use the analogy of an electric fire. We don't have them in our houses very much these days, but you know, the old-fashioned two-bar two electric fire thing, which warms us nicely, but it doesn't cease to be an electric fire and become a harmless domestic decoration if we fall on it or if we fall asleep too close to it. You cannot domesticate or tame the fires of God's great love. So as I close, I want to try and summarize the drama of the first six seals. They have given us a general overview of history, I suggest, between the first and second comings of Christ. In other words, where we are now. It will be a season of violent disturbances and suffering. But the eye of faith will look beyond all that to Christ Christ, who is both the crowned, white-robed, mounted conqueror, but also the slain, seal-breaking lamb controlling history. But it still leaves us with a question, doesn't it? What is meant by Jesus the Lamb opening the scroll? Are we really saying that God the Holy Trinity, the Godhead of love, has dreamed up all this suffering and is rubbing his hands in glee as it is unleashed? Because you could be forgiven for thinking that. But I don't think that's what it means. Maybe an illustration may help here. Can I ask how many of you have had an eye operation for cataracts? Would you like to raise your hand? Oh, lots of you. Yes, me too. 
Maybe you were told, certainly this was true in earlier days, that the surgeon could not do the operation until the cataract had grown ripe enough to a particular size. Any of you told that kind of stuff? See? Yes, well, I, I certainly was. Only then could the surgeon deal with it effectively and permanently. In the same way, perhaps, the evil in the world prompted by the devil has to be allowed to do its worst, to reach its height, and so eventually to be sufficiently ripe, as it were, for conclusive and irreversible removal surgery to be effective, as opposed to a patching up operation which would simply lead to it breaking out afresh. So I suggest to you, friends, and this is only a suggestion, and other commentators may disagree, but I suggest that in Seals 1 to 5, the dark powers of evil are given their head. That head swells, exposing all in its true colours, but enabling the Lamb finally through the sixth seal to conquer, to defeat the devil, to bring righteousness and judgment. Now, I did warn you at the beginning, Revelation chapter 6 has been a tough road, hasn't it? And there's worse to come in chapters 8 and 9, the trumpets, although we won't be dealing with that in detail in this course. There simply isn't time. But remember, before chapter 6, in chapters 4 and 5, session 1 tonight, we had the glorious vision of worship in the heavenlies. And that is there to steady and reassure us before the horrors of chapter 6. That's why John writes it as he does. And in chapter 7, before the horrors of the trumpets, that version of worship is seen again as we focus in on that mysterious 144,000. Hey, but to find out what that number means... You'll have to wait until the 27th of March. Let's be quiet for a moment before we have questions. <laughs>